Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Dallas Hoganson, co-founder and CEO of Felix, a B2B marketplace for steel and aluminum, solving commerce and logistics for the gigantic industrials industry. Welcome to the podcast, Dallas. Elaine, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to hear a little bit about your background because when I was doing some digging, it does not seem that you come from the kind of industrials or steel industry. It seems like you came from the sales side of high growth and high tech consumer and enterprise companies. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you found your way into the steel industry. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I've been, you know, I've been thinking about marketplaces for the last decade, really, but I started my career and I've spent the last 10 years in San Francisco and New York and um, now obviously in Denver. But, um, you know, I was fascinated um, from, from the sales side of the business and uh, lucky enough that it was kind of when I, when I transferred from the, from the finance world, it was the only place that would really take me when I moved to Silicon Valley. And I was just really interested in building uh, startup companies. And so I got connected to the YC network really early. And um, I had a thesis back in like 2010 that the marketplace marketplaces, B2B marketplaces and commerce were really kind of like the future of how um, commerce was going to happen. So I wanted to surround myself with people who were focusing on those problems and those principles. And ultimately what happened in uh, late 2019, our last company got acquired. And uh, part of that deal, I'd negotiated my way out of kind of staying on board. And so I could think about what is the next marketplace I want to build. And I spent time doing everything. I was calling trailer parks, I was calling dirt farms. I was fascinated by looking at where does a dollar flow in industries where private equity is rich and venture is poor. And I had a fundamental belief that today with all the point solutions out there, that there is some industry out there where commerce is needed. And you know, I was really committed to, to having those conversations and spending time there. And actually what happened is I have an aunt that's worked in the steel space for 20 or 30 years and a friend that runs a steel company in the Northwest. And so I spent time speaking with them and really trying to understand how does a dollar flow through this industry? Where does it sit? Who makes money? How does it work? How do they find their customers? And ultimately, I just I really got fascinated that things still operate this way. Uh, it was the most antiquated, fragmented market I've ever been a part of or seen and the people in this world have been there for 25, 30 years and doing things day one, you know, same 30, 30 years later as they're doing day one. And um, a little bit of like serendipitously, I actually had got called from an executive recruiter who usually calls me around marketplaces and, and, and things like that and connected me to the CEO of one of the largest steel companies in the United States who was thinking about building a B2B marketplace for steel. And so after spending a month or two with him understanding really what his vision was and the problem set within the space and um, how much access he really had. Uh, it was it was evident to me that this is one of the biggest markets in the world and nobody was looking. 
And I never thought I would be a steel person. Um, I don't call myself a steel person today. I think there's probably a decade in front of me to really learn the business still. But um, this is one of the most fascinating, I think, opportunities that's left along the supply chain that has real disruptive properties that are still available on the technology side. What was one of the original insights years ago that got you excited about B2B marketplaces in general and why you thought that there there was a great opportunity in the space right now? Yeah. So what I what I started to realize and actually where the hook um, sat for me is was actually kind of like the introduction of the iPhone and basically the mobile component of consumerization um, and how people were actually now doing uh, their day-to-day purchasing on their iPhone. And people wanted that experience within the workplace. And so when I was working uh, in the financial world, I was studying these startup companies and I was studying Silicon Valley and looking for different investment opportunities. And it was evident to me early on that the the new wave of purchasing was happening, mobile and consumer driven, that simplicity was happening there. And that wasn't translating into any of the purchasing mechanisms along some of the manufacturing companies that we were looking at and things like that. And uh, I I was just fascinated that like, why isn't that the case? Uh, at that point, though, you know, it was very hard for those companies to solve those problems. And it still is today. I think we're on a turning point now where technology is allowing that to happen as you're seeing all this investment dollars go into the supply chain. Um, and we're still a long ways off to solving that. But it was it was for me after getting into the startup world and doing purchasing at the first company we were at called iCracked, which was the world's largest on-demand iPhone repair company. Um, we were sourcing parts uh, from China and all over the world. And that process was fundamentally just broken. It was hard. There was no visibility. Um, you know, our, our founders were on planes all the time working in factories in Shenzhen, trying to figure out how do we source these products with reliability and how do we pay for them with ease. And like that just did not exist. And so we had talked about that internally quite a bit. Like, why do not these things exist? How come, how come we have to do things this way? Well, now I can get my iPhone fixed after hitting one button. They'll come to me anywhere I am in the world to fix my iPhone where I'm at at that spot today. And so, um, you know, I had I had held on to that belief and tried to focus my time, energy and effort for the next decade around learning about the principles that kind of fit into that model and ultimately which led me here. Um, So, yeah. I want to get into a little bit of the industry, but first walk me through the, what happens. You get approached by this executive recruiter and take into, you know, my guess is these people are old school kind of steel industry people. How did you convince them to take you seriously and ultimately let you take over the helm of a company where you you, you said yourself, you're not an industry native? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So you know, I'll never forget like getting off the phone and my wife sitting next to me on the couch and, I, and she's like, who is that? And I was like, well, they want me to talk to a steel company. And she's like, what? So I, just, I just remember like that conversation and thinking the same thing. Everybody that I really knew or associated with in the steel industry is on the older side, right? They'd been in the industry for 30 or 40 years. Um, they're very opinionated in the way things are done. Um, they are a steak and wine type of crowd who that's where deals get done, right? They've had the relationship. I don't need you. I don't need your help. That was my mentality walking in, honestly. Um, and what was interesting is I started to learn more about the company and the founder. The other founders was these guys were my age, young thirties had taken over family businesses 
and were fundamentally committed to using technology to change their business. And so I remember the first conversation I had with Todd Lebo, who is one of our co-founders and is on the board today and currently the CEO of Majestic Steel. You know, we spent two hours together. We talked about everything from music to basketball to sports to you, you name it. Like the energy and passion was radiant from him. He's like, I know there's a problem and I'm doing everything I can commit to to solving it. And what he told me, and I'll never forget day one, he's like, this is the most important thing I can spend my time on. He's like, I have an obligation to build Majestic Steel into one of the best service centers in the world. But the future of this industry lies on building a digital marketplace to transact. And so what was evident to me at the end of that conversation on the first day was that there was someone who was passionate, um, had spent his life in the industry and was looking for a partner that could build the infrastructure, architecture and company to go solve that vision. And so it was kind of a perfect fit from, from day one where um, I knew how to build the technology and marketplace. And he had asked, he was one phone call away from everybody in the industry. And so we had this inherent trust layered in from the start, from the get go, which allowed us, I think, really to gain traction momentum early on, because I couldn't have done this by myself. And so um, I think it would have been different, honestly, if there were, if I was talking to somebody that maybe was at the later stage of their career. And looking to do this, but he, from day one, he said, here are the keys. I believe you can go do this. I know you can go do this. You let me know what I can do to help and we'll do it. And that's the relationship we've had from day one. That sounds like a match made in heaven. You're coming from kind of the Silicon Valley entrepreneurial ethos, and he's coming from deep industry expertise. But it's also this changing of the guard where there are people, like you mentioned, millennials taking over family businesses, or people who are coming from more middle of the country who are coming to run these these companies in very traditional industries, and they're coming with their smartphones in their hands and want to adopt technology. Can you talk, excuse me, can you talk a little bit just about how big this industry is today? I actually have no concept of how large the steel industry is. Yeah. So just to put a little context um, into everybody's head is that on average, there's about 600 pounds per person a year of steel that's produced. Wow. So if you, th- if you look around the room you're in today as we're recording this, think about the elements of steel that's in every product that you're using from your microphone to your desk, to the walls, uh, to the house, to the infrastructure, right? Steel really is the skeleton system for the entire economy. And the market globally is over a trillion dollar market. And today, um, in the United States alone, just with flat and long product, uh, you know, it's $160 billion at the first point of transaction. What is, you said flat and long, what does that actually mean? Yeah. So the way to think about steel is, is actually very simple is think about flat products, things that are like the skin, right. That like wrap your appliances or your cars or things like that. And think about long products that are structural sound for like buildings and ecosystems like that. And, um, that's how we usually talk about it just to, to keep it simple, like in, in layman's terms, right. But the, the long, the long tail of the different types of products is, um, incredible, which is, which is fun for us and that, but we think about steel kind of in those, the the constructs of flat and long products and down the supply chain from there. 
Got it. Can you walk us through a little bit about what both kind of the upstream and downstream supply chains look like today? Where is it being manufactured? Who are the buyers? What does that ecosystem look like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as most people know or have seen, you know, pictures of steel mills or things like that in the past. So steel actually really starts um, at the at the raw state where the iron ore, the coking coal, right, the scrap iron, the raw materials that are going in to make um, that that uh, the actual steel product. And so the way that we think about the ecosystem today is where we really start at the at the steel mills. So in the United States today, there's about 114 steel mills that are making these type of products and they're melting down scrap or they're taking raw materials to build flat coiled sheets of steel. And those actually usually are get distributed down to a service center level. So if you are a large manufacturer, you can go direct to the mill, but for the most part, steel is purchased in a distribution mechanism where it starts at the service center level where there's about 12 to 15,000 different uh, service centers alone in the United States um, that will sell directly to the end market or the consumer, whether that's transportation, whether that's construction, agriculture, appliances, HVAC, um, or even down to kind of the long tail mom and pop manufacturer that might need one, two, or three different parts um, to manufacture the process that they're doing. And so uh, Felix today really sits at the service center level where we get involved as we help uh, those find better distribution mechanisms. We handle the transportation logistics and service offerings for them um, just to give them more visibility down the supply chain and work with the buyers to get access to different suppliers um, that could offer what a different product pricing or, uh, or whatever, something like that. But um, in the United States alone, I believe there's over 200 plus thousand steel purchasers. Right. Wow. And, and 90 and 99 to 95, depending on what industry it is, has happened via spreadsheet, email, um, facts, like we still see facts. I still have conversations with people that actually don't have computers, um, at this point. And, um, almost, almost all of these transactions are done either ACH or paper check. Oh yeah. Not surprised. Lots of room for improvement there. Have you seen any shift in terms of, especially on the supply side, you know, you mentioned uh, a little over a hundred mills in the U S has a lot of the production shifted offshore. Are we seeing things crop up in China and Asia, South America, or is it primarily still done in the U S for the U S market? So China is the largest um, steel producer in the world. Um, and I think they make up like over half of the steel production. Although the, the, the way that the legislature is written today is that there is really an anti-dumping law associated with China. And so China is its own separate beast that is separate from North America. And um, today in the United States, what's really interesting is with the impact of COVID is we're at the one of the largest steel supply shortages in history. And so what you're seeing now is, is looking for people going offshore to find different imported goods, but the, the lead time on those are coming in at this point in September. Mm-hmm. And so right now what we're seeing in the United States, um, you're having a lot of mills shut down. You have um, capacity uh, being squeezed. And so they're trying to get all these mills back up to speed. And so they actually can service the consumer. Because right now what is happening, unless you are a preferred customer, a lot of the times you're actually not getting access directly to that relationship that you used to have. And so we're seeing uh, production and the supply chain, not just in steel, but everywhere else, as, as a lot of people know really be disrupted because people cannot get material. Um, and that's really affecting the long tail. These mom and pop shops are shutting down. Um, they can't fulfill orders. And so therefore like either yeah, it's a waiting game 
for months on end right now. But uh, production uh, within the United States is trying to get back up to speed. Um, we're, 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 we're seeing it come back up to speed after kind of a March low at the beginning of COVID. But what's interesting here is prices have tripled since March of last year. So we're up, uh, depending if you're looking for steel, aluminum, galvanized, whatever material it is, you're essentially paying three to four times the amount that you paid at this point last year for the same material, if you can get it at all. Because of all the supply chain slowdowns and things like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Are, does the U.S. export steel and aluminum or is this something where pretty much everything we're producing, we're consuming in, in the country? Um. That's a that's a good question. Um, from the from an aluminum side, we do import quite a bit, and so um, a lot of the things actually we're working on right now is working on the importing side. Uh, you know how our business focus is completely domestic today. There's just so much action here at the moment um, that we're not even really worried about the the export of that because it's all being consumed domestically at this point. Makes sense. You mentioned, you know, you're starting at a place where people are using phone, paper, fax, ACH. How about on the actual transportation side? So how does I make a purchase of steel? Mm -hmm. I don't even know what the unit of purchase is. So that's actually something I'd love to hear you talk about. How do I get it? How is it actually being shipped to me? That is a great question. Uh, This is another huge problem right now is that the, the trucking shortage supply has caused even further disruption at the moment. And what we deal is with the flatbed market. So the flatbed market in itself is one of the most fragmented um, logistics markets in the United States. Uh, And most of the flatbed ownership is, you know, they have less than 20 trucks. And so what we're running into right now, and a way to think about a unit um, of steel is our average purchase price is anywhere between kind of 20 to $40,000, which is like 22,000 pounds. So that's basically a full truckload. Uh, of material. So like when you're driving down the highway, you see those huge coils of steel on the back of those flatbed trucks. That is a typical transaction to us. It's not like you're going into Home Depot and purchasing um, a sheet or an angle or or anything like that. Like you're, we're purchasing in bulk and uh, we started there on purpose, but uh, this is a really big issue. So the way that transportation works traditionally in this industry is if you are a mid-sized company and up, you might have one to five people internally that are managing the logistics of every deal on the supply side. And I tell when I say that, I mean that you're literally managing it off a ledger. It is that person is the busiest person in the company that, 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 that role has the highest turnover of anybody in the company. And essentially what they're doing is they're playing an internal broker where they're leveraging the two to 300 relationships they have based on what geo they're working with or what um, zip code they're delivering to. They're looking for the best uh, lane rate that they can receive. And they're doing that by their manually. They're picking up the phone to getting a live quote on that rate. They're comparing and they go back into forecast and financing to close that deal. And that's how the transaction is finalized on supply side. It and is, are the rates shifting on a daily basis or how, how quickly it, are they shifting? Yeah. I mean, imagine like you talk about, we've three to four X price of steel. It's the same thing that's in the, the daily market in the lane. And, um, and so that's a big part of why we're building a marketplace for kind of the smaller guys to choose logistics providers. And we're also managing the transportation logistics in-house um, because as a buyer, this is something that's really interesting that a lot of people don't really know, but the buyer actually gets raked over the coals on the cost if the supplier is actually providing logistics, this is where they make their margin in the transaction. 
And so we actually believe at the core of what we're doing is, you know, we're a data transportation company that moves large quantity of metals. Uh, because those are all the things that are really broken within within the within the supply chain, specifically in steel and aluminum. And so you mentioned you're handling the logistics. So do you operate your own fleet of trucks? Um, I'm not going to comment on that. Ah, but there's some really interesting, there's really some interesting stuff that um, that can be done with that. Yes. Yeah, I would imagine there's many points of entry in this market that you can easily disrupt. I mean, first in terms of just discovery. You know, I would imagine that historically you had your one or two vendors, you've had a 30 year relationship with them and that's who you use, but that might not be the right solution for you. You might be able to get better prices, better timing, different product. And so just the discovery aspect of bringing everyone on a marketplace, that's a huge unlock. Then removing all the friction in terms of doing the transaction is a whole separate unlock. Absolutely. So I think the the word discovery is like the really appropriate way to think about like the, the first order problem is um, as a buyer, uh, we'll take an example, you know, you might be a mid-market manufacturer. And so you're not like a tier one, two or three manufacturer, like you're a mom and pop shop that's been building that company for 20 or 30 years, you've had established relationships, and all of a sudden the market gets upended. Now what? Well, discovery is actually really hard. There's, There's no kind of single point of location to go find and explore different types of supply options. And along that, what's really interesting is if I can come to you and say, hey, listen, I have five suppliers in these five locations. Here are four or five shipping logistics options for each of those suppliers. Here's the cost. Here are different financing options for that. Well, actually, as a buyer now, you can actually make very smart decisions on where you get material from. And that just does not exist today. Uh, it, it, it Basically, the equivalent would be like you're opening up a white page and you're just dialing down the list contacting them and then going through a discovery process, understanding what they have, the cost negotiation. We're trying to eliminate all of that to give Is power there an back opportunity to there. You know, I know how low margin a lot of these different B2B marketplace products are. Is there an arbitrage opportunity to almost find margin by being able to go and almost match make based off of optimal price and, and timing and things like that? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, we, we actually think there's quite a bit to be interesting. To be this, this is where arbitrage is probably at one of the highest points, mm-hmm. and along with the logistics component to it. So, um, you know, we actually think that the arbitrage opportunity for us in the short term actually lies right there. Just the, the ability for an in-house team to do that is almost null, unless you're a Tesla who has a staff of MBAs that are looking for arbitrage and that are pricing out all those mechanisms. A lot of companies don't have the ability to do such. Have you seen consolidation in this industry or fragmentation over time? Yeah, we're we're in a huge consolidation phase right now. And part of that, too, is a lot of this market wasn't ready for digitization. Um, COVID wiped a, a large majority of the supply side out of this market because they had been doing things the same way. And um, at that point, kind of the bigger guys have just been swooping up location, strategic locations. And so we, you hear that the conversation now in the industry is about what can we do to provide commerce online, right? And that just like that doesn't exist today. Like the the typical transaction flow, as a supplier, a buyer would come to your website if they're new, they would fill out a contact us form. You go through a negotiation phase, and all of that is offline. Nothing's established. There's no kind of long tail information play there. 
And so because of that, suppliers are really struggling to find new consumers for their product because doing business with them is really hard. We call it the menu problem uh, internally. And the, the analogy I love to use is Slice, um, the pizza company who basically built a back, back-end ordering mechanism and connecting um, the, the consumers of pizza to all the mom and pops across the country. And that's a way to think about what we're doing too on the supply side, essentially building the Shopify commerce platform for the supplier. And so their consumers can actually go on their assets, have a consumer-like experience, purchase, find logistics, do a checkout process on that supplier's assets. Um, And so they have a much more enriched experience for their consumer. Because really our thesis, like I talked about at the beginning, is we want to provide a consumer-like experience to to this supply chain. I like the analogy to slice because ultimately what you're enabling these long tail mom and pop suppliers to do is remain independent and, you know, right. keep, keep a foothold in the industry. Yeah. And we're, and we're building this for the builders of our economy. Like we talk about that internally, like we, we feel really lucky. Um, and we wear that with a sense of pride, but it also comes with a lot of responsibility is like, we believe that we have an opportunity to give those mom and pops a tool set that is not overly complicated, um, that solves discovery, that gives them access to mid-market enterprise-grade pricing, and they can actually manage and run their business because those are kind of the backbone and builders of this economy. And if you look at the infrastructure bills and things like that, like it's an important part of the next decade of the United States. And you know, that's what kind of keeps us going internally thinking about that mantra is that like, that's actually a pretty heavy weight to deal with is if we get this right, we get to help a lot of people. Absolutely. You know, as you've been immersed in the space now for a little bit, what other areas have you seen that are just massive problems waiting for technology to tackle that's probably out of the scope of what you're doing at Felix? That's a great question. Um, I think about this every day, but um, most recently we're thinking about scrap, the scrap market. And I know that's kind of analogous to what we're dealing with, but um, everything I talked about today, like double the intensity of the problem set in scrap. And so like we've positioned ourselves strategically with some important players to start tackling that problem. Um, The other thing that we didn't think about too, and this is just a little analogous to our space is actually we are helping a lot of manufacturers resell material. Ah, interesting. Yeah. How how uh, big of a piece of your supplier's overall market is that, is the resale part? Um, I won't comment on like the percentage part, but it, it's a very rapidly growing part of the business. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see people are using the term circular economy, but in general, it's, it's really fascinating to see how many different areas people are trying to tackle the reuse recycle and in a lot of non-intuitive ways. So it's interesting and very cool that it's happening in, in your industry. Yeah, we, we like, I mean, carbon emissions, if you think about like the carbon emission footprint from steel is, you know, 15, 15 of the 51 like gigatons that are put yeah, out every year. And, huge. and so like, we're thinking about us like a lot of the long-term factors, like how do we influence some of that behavior with like the circular economy, right? How do we recycle the goods? How do we think about like really thoughtfully how everything happens and who we partner with? And uh, we know that short-term it's hard for us to make a large impact, but if we think over time, um, you know, little by little, we can continually make an impact in that space, which we believe like we're, we can be a steward for. 
It ties in nicely too with that the adjacency of scrap. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the scrap uh, the scrap market is fascinating, by the way. And I recommend <laughs> a lot. Of, I recommend people go look. Absolutely, I'll yeah. do that on the next episode. Great suggestion. I have well, I have an amazing person for you to talk to. Please, thank you. I would I would appreciate that. Well, Dallas, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I learned a ton. You know, one of the last questions I always like to ask people: Has there been a piece of advice you've been given in either your personal or work life that's really stuck with you and are words you live by? Yeah, a ton. Um, you know, I think it's a mentality. Um, there's, so there's a few that I think are actually really important. Um, one from like a management layer, it's called leverage versus expectations, right? Um, if you, if we can set a clear path and we can get people to buy in and talk about what they want to go do as a leader, you can help support that. And this is where leverage happens where if that doesn't happen, we can say what happened, what got in the way, how did we fail you? How can we help you be better? What tools can we give you so this doesn't happen again? And so that really gets this entrepreneurial spirit that we try to build here at Felux is give people the power to attack like these really big problems in front of them. I mean, one of our core values is dream big. Like we don't care about 10x returns. We care about 100x returns. And so we're taking huge bets all the time. And we expect that failure is a part of your life. And the only way to do that is give people control and like take wild bets and and so I say that because um, the thing that I that has stuck with me, and this comes from David Baga, the old chief business officer from Lyft, is like we got to move fast, we got to focus, and we got to fail hard. And I believe that mantra is is incredibly important. To anything is that if I'm failing a hundred times while you're failing once, we're gonna do we're gonna do interesting stuff. I love that. That's by far one of the most interesting answers I've heard. And you're absolutely right. The more times you fail, the more opportunities and learnings you have to succeed. So no question there. I agree. So for the listeners out there who want to learn more about you and Felix, where should they go? So you can go to Felix.com. Um, we are hiring. Go to the domain, go to Felix.com. Um, reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. Be happy to have a conversation with you. Um, we are hiring like crazy right now from the product and engineering and marketing side. So I'd love to have conversations with people who think unsexy spaces are really interesting. Well, awesome. Anyone out there, if you're interested in the B2B marketplace space or transforming some old school industries, just waiting for disruption, go check out Felix. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was awesome to have you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.